Normal just means you're in the house. If you're 0.4, you're in the basement laying on the floor of the house. Now, maybe you'll feel better if you're in the middle of the house. That would be an eightfold increase in your testosterone level. Now, it seems crazy to me to say to a woman, why wouldn't you want to be in the middle of normal, especially when you have fatigue, you're falling asleep in the afternoon, your hair is thinning, you feel meh, you don't have a sex drive. When you have all the symptoms, just because it's normal, like I said, I can multiply it eightfold and it would just be in the middle of normal. Welcome to Nutrition Without Compromise, a podcast brought to you by Orlo Nutrition. We believe that nutrition shouldn't be an either or, that you should never have to sacrifice your morals for your health or that of our home planet. Join natural products veteran Karina Belizzi and experts from around the globe as they discuss healthy solutions that are better for you and better for the planet. Welcome to another interview episode of Nutrition Without Compromise. Before I introduce today's incredible guest, I need to first remind everyone that this podcast, and specifically this episode, is for educational purposes only. The information we share is not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure any health condition. If you are experiencing health symptoms of any sort, you should seek help from a trusted medical professional. And now it's going to become painfully clear why I had to make sure I hit that Today, we are going to dive deep into women's health and hormonal balance for reproductive health, better energy, and healthy aging as we meet Dr. Sean Tasson. He's known as America's holistic gynecologist, the first physician in the United States to be double board certified in obstetrics and gynecology and by the American Board of Integrative Medicine. He holds a medical degree in addition to a PhD in mind-body medicine. Dr. Tasson is a practicing OBGYN in the Austin, Texas area. He's a hormonal expert, author, speaker, highly rated patient advocate, creator of the world's first integrative hormonal mapping system, and host of my new favorite podcast, The Confessions of a Male Gynecologist. In his 20 plus years of practice, he's listened to over 50,000 women's stories and is determined to remove the myths surrounding women's health. His work includes studies and publications on hormonal imbalances, spirituality and medical care, Whole Foods to Heal the Human Body, and Integrative Medicine. His work is featured in many publications, including the New York Times, NBC News Online, and Stanford MedEx. His latest book, The Hormone Balance Bible, published by HarperCollins, is available for purchase worldwide. Dr. Sean Tasson, welcome to the show. You made me sound so amazing. Thank you so much. You've developed a fan here. This is how I discovered you through this whole world of podcasting. And I love literally every episode I've had the joy of listening to, whether you guested on somebody else's show or even the production of your own. And I do love the confessions at the end of each show. Oh, thank you. So I wanted to open this conversation and talk a little bit about why you chose to come forward and start something like a podcast. I think podcasts are interesting. For me, the podcast itself was an extension of my clinic. I just felt there's a lot of things that I say over and over again. And there's a lot of misinformation out there about women's health and hormones. And I've seen so many patients who come in and didn't know about testosterone or didn't know what birth control pills do with the body or so many things of fibroids, endometriosis, whatever it was, maybe I could reach more people if I actually put it on a different platform. And because one-on-one is great, but you're limited in the number of people you can reach. 
So it was just an extension. And actually what I found, and maybe you have this too, is that I just really enjoy doing them. I like making the podcasts. I don't necessarily like to listen to myself, so I don't listen to them my own, but I really enjoy making them. I have to say, it's almost as if growing up as women, we're even taught that our hormonal health is a mystery. It's some of the mysticism of being a woman, that woman is unique and different. And so if you experience problems like hormonal breakouts, which I suffered from my whole life, honestly, had reduced levels of breakouts when I took the pill, but chose to go off of that in my late teens and haven't ever since. And then I'm in my mid-40s now. Suddenly, my breakouts aren't happening as much. So I know there's a hormonal shift, but I've yet to get to the bottom of it. My only other symptom as a 46-year-old woman is that I will admit I have a weakening libido. And so again, I know something's happening here. I actually went to your website. You talk about the fact that you have a hormone type quiz that you offer on your site and some archetypes that you've designed to help people figure out where they are in the path. And interestingly, I took the test once, but I got two email results. And so I was wondering if I could ask you about that. I was the nun and the second was the unbalanced heroine. So what would this say about me? And perhaps we can use this as a jumping off point to talk about how you designed these archetypes to help women manage their own health? First of all, everybody in the space of hormones has a quiz. I didn't want to design a quiz that was, hey, take these 10 questions and I'm going to tell you what your problem is. My quiz is a little bit more involved. It's about 36 questions, I think. And each of the questions in the background is weighted differently. And the way that you answer changes the weight of the mathematical equation on the back end. So the fact that you got two answers means you probably had two things that were the same, the equal, like one wasn't more dominant, they were very similar. What I noticed was also, when I talk to patients about, say, low testosterone, and I go through the symptoms, they resonate. But if I told a story about a nun and how a good practice for a nun would be to go outside because nuns tend to stay in, they cloister and they stay inside. And, and I would go through this thing and good nuns obviously don't have sex. So that would, that's a decrease in testosterone effect. Nuns are like quiet. This is a grand generalization, but it really resonated. And at the time I was doing this, I was reading a lot of Caroline Mace, who's a Hay House author, and she talks a lot about archetypes and Carl Jung and another author named Sally Hogshead, who also talk a lot about archetypes. And I always resonated with those. I always just thought they were fun. And so I thought, well, wouldn't it be fun to put the 12 more common hormone imbalances that I see in my office into these archetypal storylines to try and resonate with women. So the nun would be low testosterone and then the unbalanced heroine. I felt like the ultimate hero's journey for a woman is pregnancy. And the hormone responsible in pregnancy, the big one is progesterone. And so women with low progesterone, I call them unbalanced and heroes or heroines. So that's where I came up with that title. And But there's 10 hormone imbalances and then there's two that are blended. So there's a couple of blended ones. Okay, that's interesting. Now, progesterone, of course, would be something that would decline as we start to go into perimenopause or menopause, right? Because we're no longer trying to become pregnant or our bodies are losing that capability, correct? The frequency, so it, progesterone is made after you ovulate. So for women that are in perimenopause that may not ovulate every month, they may not have that progesterone coming in every month. So 
the actual progesterone you make may be similar to when you were in your 20s, but you may not do it as frequently. So that's where the problem comes in. And that's also the hormone that's responsible for a lot of the symptoms with PMDD or PMS type symptoms when your progesterone is low. This leads me to another conversation I've been itching to have with people who work in the OBGYN space. As a woman, I didn't enter motherhood until I was in my late 30s and into my early 40s. And in the second pregnancy, I would be 41 at delivery. And this was the first time I actually heard the term applied to me, but the OB that was visiting me that moment actually referred to my pregnancy as a geriatric pregnancy. Now, of course, the terminology isn't something that we as women would love to hear, but it is indicative of a movement that we have in our present society where women are waiting until much later in life to have children often. They're putting career first like I did and or choosing whether or not to have children and making that decision after they reach the 35 age point. Can we talk for a moment about some of the things that are different perhaps about how women experience pregnancy at this later stage in life and what you might say to those women if they're planning to have a later pregnancy, just the sorts of things that they should be aware of as they head into that. I think that with the later pregnancy trend has probably been over the last 10 to 15 years. My youngest was born when his mother was 39, I believe. And that at the time was considered pushing the envelope 18 years ago. But it is more common and it's more common because women are working and not necessarily ready to have kids yet. I think the things that change, and I've always joked that it would be great if you could have a baby with a 20-year-old body and a 50-year-old brain because you know so much more, right? And you're calmer and you're more together, but nature just doesn't do that. And so the reason that the 20-year-old body is better is because one, just the wear and tear of pregnancy, the fatigue, the joints, and not everybody's in tip-top shape as they age. And so that can play into it. But mostly too, it's the genetics that's involved, especially with the egg. The quality is not as good as it was when you were 20, when you're 40. And so that can just lead to higher rates of miscarriage, higher rates of potential genetic anomalies. It's still not super high at 40. It might be one in 180, but it's still, it's not one in 10,000 like it was when you were 20 years old. So you have to think about that. I think that women probably need to have their thyroids looked at a little more when they're pregnant because just of the added demands on the body and probably try to eat even better than they would have more omega-3 fatty acids and maybe supplementing with, first of all, a good prenatal vitamin. You want to take that folic acid or methyl tetrahydrofolate before you even are starting to get pregnant because that can lower the risks of neurological issues with the baby. So there's a lot of things you can do. Obviously, you're going to want to stay in good shape and exercise. It pretty much very similar, but at the same time, just realizing that your body's a little bit different and you might have higher rates of C-section and things like that. But ultimately, most of the time, you still have a healthy baby for the most part. Yeah, the research I've looked at because I've lived in the world of supplements for 20 plus years, specifically with regard to women during pregnancy, shows that women who do supplement with a good multivitamin and omega-3s have babies with better birth weights, better incidence of or fuller term pregnancies, specifically related to, I believe, vitamins A, D, and omega-3 fatty acids, DHA, and EPA. So they're protective, generally speaking. I think one of the benefits of women 
generally speaking, getting pregnant later in life is often they're already looking at those things and they're taking those supplements and they're trying to optimize their health because they're really planning to be their healthiest. I felt like I got a very strong compliment when at the delivery ward, the nurse said to me, you may be my oldest mom, but you're also my healthiest because all of my health markers just were returned to normal really quickly. I delivered my baby vaginally in both cases and didn't have any issues with that really aside from long, painful labors, we all go through this. But generally speaking, was able to retain my health and go the full 40 weeks with no issues, other than a little bit of pain here and there. Hey, your low back might start to bother you and things like that. But you spoke to thyroid health. And I wanted to bring this up because it's connected to so very many things that affect our health. And I think it's also a bit of a mystery to many people. We hear things like hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism. And without a knowledge base, it can just sound like, oh, just something that happens as you age and it means that your metabolism slows down or that your metabolism is overactive. They don't necessarily get to this baseline understanding of it being really rooted. It's a hormonal health in general and it affects your immune system. I personally was diagnosed with hypothyroidism at 29 after coming off of a fast and realizing I was having a difficulty swallowing when I reintroduced foods. And so I knew that could be a symptom of hypothyroidism, went to the doctor, confirmed my levels were really wrong and needed to be treated and have taken an NP thyroid basic product almost every day for the last 16, 17 years. So during my pregnancy, I did have to have those levels checked a couple of times and adjusted. Turned out I needed less thyroid hormone while I was pregnant because my body was producing more. And so I just love for you to talk about what it means to confront thyroid issue and why we might be experiencing this more as women than men, generally speaking, so that our audience can get to a better understanding of what this might mean. Thyroid is more common in women because autoimmune disorders, unfortunately, are more common in women. And that's probably because of the hormonal shifting and the things that women deal with their hormones. Anomaly that rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, Hashimoto's, all these autoimmune diseases do have a higher incidence in women. And then also in lower socioeconomic women. So there is that genetic component. And then the question is, it happens more frequently postpartum for a lot of women that thyroids will tend to go out of whack or with significant changes in their fluctuations. And so with the huge drop of hormones after pregnancy, that can unveil a thyroid disorder. The other things that I think is going on, we have a lot of neuroendocrine disruptors in the food supply, in the water, in the makeup, the things that we eat, in the plastics, and that's definitely going to throw the thyroid off, even in small amounts. It's those kind of environmental toxins and then the obesity that we have in this country, mostly from the food supply, obviously, and what we eat and the density of our calories. I just think that sets us up for thyroid problems. In my case, there was the genetic component. My mother also has hypothyroidism and hers was also discovered a little bit later in life. The doctor said because it was discovered later in life, that equals Hashimoto's, which to me was somehow more scary. And also to learn that it could affect my immune system. Now, unlike many others who are hypothyroid that I've connected with, I don't tend to get sick that frequently. I seem to be generally healthy. So that tells me I'm keeping my thyroid in at least relative balance. But I will say that the effects of stress, anxiety, I tend to, I think, notice more now 
when I'm experiencing physical stress, I will have things erupt like my joints might ache a little bit or something along those lines. And generally speaking, when that happens, I go first to diet. It's okay. I was eating too many foods that were high in omega-6s. So I'm going to cut out some of that, reduce my grains, and then suddenly I feel much better. Is there a specific diet that you tend to recommend for people who are experiencing these sorts of hormonal challenges? It's a really debatable, hot topic. There are people on both sides of the aisle from keto to carnivore to vegan. It's really an interesting area. And a lot of the dietary stuff is somewhat political and supercharged. It's really hard. I would say though in my practice, if there was one diet that I probably recommended over most, it would be modified keto type diet where I just think the refined sugars, the flour, get your starches from vegetables and maybe an occasional fruit here and there, and then quality meats and a small amount of cheese if you want to eat that because you like it. But I think that would be the first one I would go to. Obviously, a Mediterranean diet is always good too. The thing that's funny about Mediterranean diet, we always think of olive oil and olives and vegetables and stuff, but they eat a lot of meat in the Mediterranean as well. They just don't eat a lot of processed foods. Yeah, mostly lamb and stuff, but they eat meat. They just don't eat the kind of meat that we eat. That's hormone-ridden and things like that. But those two things are huge. But I also have, I have women that are vegetarians. And it's funny, I had a patient yesterday that told me she was 80% vegan. And I said, so you're a vegetarian? And she said, no, I'm 80% vegan. And I thought that was a fascinating comment because that just shows you how the label. People sometimes just want the label. Oh, I'm 80% vegan. And so that's really not a thing. But for her, it was. And I think sometimes with veganism, I have a harder time because those women, I don't always feel like have the reserves to run their hormones very well. You got to meet people where they are. I've had some women that had to go back on meat because their hormones were out of whack. It's interesting because you mentioned a moment ago the carnivore diet, and I've listened to a fair number of podcasts in that arena as well. I think you know who I'm referring to. I'm forgetting his name right now. Paul Saladino. Yes, that's it. At first, I was like, it's not possible that someone that's a human being is a pure carnivore for a long time. And then I learned that he's added dairy, honey, and fruits to that repertoire, which helps him to have a more balanced microbiome. Because after a while, if you're just eating all these heats, raw organ meats, which to me, I don't think I could ever get myself to that point, but it could ultimately mean that your digestion would have a real tough time if you didn't have any fiber at all. I think it's really interesting to see these kind of extreme diets. I think in many cases, they work really well for a short period of time. But generally speaking, the thing that I've heard from many who work in as endocrinologists is that they don't see their patients do better on grains. And so just make a baseline recommendation once they encounter a diagnosis, say, try not to consume grains for a while and see how you feel. And that does tend to get people back into the kitchen, focusing more on whole foods, fruits and vegetables, and then they see a cascade of health benefits that come from that. And it's not to be super limiting because they could literally consume anything else that they wanted, perhaps not the sugary treats, so to speak, but real natural whole foods and just limit grains for a while and see how you do. They see things like better modulated blood sugar with time and things along those lines as well. So there's some benefits that come along with it. I know you too also referred to certain supplements that you like to recommend in your practice. 
And of course, here at Orlo, we're hyper-focused on omega-3s and then specifically this polar lipid form so your body can absorb it, but delivering that vegan source of EPA and DHA. And I believe omega-3s are in your top five. What were the other four, if you could go through them quickly? I'm a big fan of maca. Maca for me is probably number one. I think the beautiful thing about maca is it helps with almost all hormone imbalances. We don't know the exact mechanism of action of it, but I can tell you from the thousands of people that I've had on it that stay on it, it really does help. And it can fill in the gaps, I think, where the hormones aren't necessarily getting with sleep sometimes and hot flashes. And for women that especially don't want to go on hormones because of history of breast cancer or whatever, it's a great option. You mentioned the omega-3s. That can be either fish or flax or plant-based, whatever you want. I'm a big fan of magnesium glycinate or magnesium supplementation. I think with the number of things in the body that magnesium does, and we mostly don't get enough of it, I think it's super important. I'm a big fan of vitamin D. Probably 95% of the population is insufficient with vitamin D. And I really want to get a product that blends that with vitamin K because vitamin K will help with the absorption. And then last, I have a product that I really like. It's one of the only proprietary formulas that I will recommend because I'm purist when it comes to these types of things. I like to, if I'm going to just have a product, I want just that thing in there. Like I don't want a sleep formula that's got lavender and magnesium and all these things. I'd rather have one thing. So then I know if it's working. The one proprietary formula I really like is called Zyphlamend. It's a combination of holy basil, rosemary, turmeric, ashwagandha, some It's really got a lot of research behind it. I take it myself daily. It's not just for like wear and tear inflammation. It works well with autoimmune stuff, but it's also good for your heart. It really helps overall inflammatory processes. So that's that those are my top five. Well, and that would work really well in combination with an omega-3 too. That was one of New Chapter's flagship products when they first brought that out. It was a game changer for many who experienced things like joint pain and really was a precursor to, I think, the success of all these turmeric products that are out there today. It definitely has a lot of science behind it too. So you mentioned magnesium and glycinate specifically. Is there a particular reason you like the glycinate form? Glycinate, I think, absorbs really well. It doesn't give you as much of the GI stuff. The laxative effect. Yeah. You can take 800 milligrams of mag glycinate and not have diarrhea. Whereas with some of the other forms you do, mag 3 and 8 is really nice. Sometimes I'll use that one if it's headache related because it does cross the blood brain barrier. So that's a great one. But it really just trying to find, it's not a one size fits all, but I think most people do well. Mag glycinate also helps a lot with sleep. So that's another, and I see so many women in their 40s and 50s that just don't sleep. And so I, that's one of the reasons I use that one. Well, I will say that when I was pregnant too, I would use magnesium calmed by Peter Gillum's form vi- natural vitality. I'd mix it with some chamomile tea as my evening beverage because I didn't have a glass of wine because I was pregnant. And I also found that it helped to keep me regular, but I kept it to one teaspoon and not two because if I jumped over that hurdle, I would have a close relationship with the bathroom for a little while. So that's very good. Is that safe for pregnant or nursing women? Because I know some herbs you need to avoid. No, maca, I don't recommend for anybody that's pregnant or nursing because it can affect the estrogen progesterone levels. There's no real data to show that it lowers estrogen or progesterone, but we do know from studies that 
in breastfeeding uh, women, it will reduce the amount of breast milk in it. So I won't recommend it in those two instances. I figured you're the person to ask. And often women, especially in that phase, are hesitant to add supplements that aren't just the standard ADK2, vitamin C, things like that that are more common. Great to know. Now, as we explore this conversation a little more. I have spent some time on your website as well. And I understand that you developed this shines method as your approach to help people attain their best hormonal balance and live their most vivacious life. Can you talk about that? I think it's one of those things where when people go to a doctor, they get a prescription and that's pretty common. And I don't think it's too far from the truth to say that it happens a lot. And when women come for hormonal issues, obviously the plan is to replace hormones. So I really was doing the prescription part, but I wasn't really helping them with the other things they could be doing. And SHINES, you have to come up with a cool acronym so you can remember it. But basically what I was doing, my PhD is in philosophy and I really spent a lot of time working with indigenous healers. And so I have that spiritual side, but The first S is spirituality, and that can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. Let's say for the nun, a spiritual practice for the nun, like I said, is to get outside and be with people. Go out, go for a walk, get out of the house, don't cloister yourself. The H is hormones, which we handle obviously with prescriptions usually. The I is what I call infaceuticals, and infaceuticals are things that convey information to the body. That could be essential oils, that could be acupuncture, Reiki, any, I call it my 20% woo factor, but I wanted to give people that liked to try those types of things, some data-driven options for balancing hormones. The N is nutrition. And I think nutrition is probably the key, the biggest piece of the puzzle. And if you're not going to change the way that you eat, you're not going to change the way you do things. That's going to be hard to achieve hormone balance. The E is going to be exercise, which is self-explanatory, but everything has its own. So archetype for the nun, it's to get your testosterone up. You're going to want to do resistance training. You're going to want to lift weights. You're going to want to lift heavy weights. You're going to want to do multiple joint weightlifting, like squatting and lunging and things like that. High intensity interval training for cardio, that'll get your testosterone level up. And then lastly, the last S is supplementation. And the great thing is, You only need me for one of those. The other five you can do on your own. Those are all DIY kind of things, DIY. You only need me for the actual prescription part. And if you're getting to the gym and doing that resistance training, I have to admit I've done less of that this last six months and I definitely notice a difference. I mentioned for a moment that my skin honestly has cleared up in this last year, probably. When I was going to the gym and hitting it hard and boosting my testosterone naturally, I was breaking out more. I tend to notice these two things are a little bit related, but honestly felt better, felt stronger, and was, of course, a little toner and leaner. Yeah, of course. And that's good. We know from studies that longevity is now being tied to muscle mass. And so the more muscle you have, the longer you potentially live. And you boost your testosterone, you actually boost your body's ability to build more muscle. And it doesn't mean you'll end up looking like the Hulk, but you can get really toned and really tight. And I think women need to also be less afraid of lifting heavy weight because it doesn't mean you're going to bulk up. It just means that your strength will improve and your testosterone levels will also come up a bit, which can positively affect also your libido. 
One of the things that you've spoken out a bit against on your podcast is this whole concept of pellets. And I must admit that I didn't even know what they were until I heard you speak of it. And I feel like in the spirit of, let's say, producing a PSA here, a public service announcement, can you talk to us about why OBGYNs and other doctors might prescribe something like pellet hormone treatment and what the negative effects of that? I'm brutal when I talk about it, and I'm probably being mean to my colleagues, but I only think there's two reasons to use pellets. One is money, and two is stupidity. I just think it's, there's no real reason to use pellets on humans. They've been used in animals for years, obviously, but the thing with pellets is it's good in theory. Like, it makes sense. Like, if hey, if we could just give you a hormone and have it slowly released, over three to four months, and you didn't have to worry about putting the cream on or whatever, that would be great. The problem is they don't get released. When they promote them, it's always, oh, it's perfect release. And no, that doesn't happen. What happens is you get about one to two months where your levels go way, way up. And then over about three to four months, they slowly trend down. So over time, it's just a big sawtooth pattern, just up and down. And levels of hormones The other thing with pellets is there's no real great way to dose them and put you in the normal range. Most women that have pellets done have levels five to eight times normal. Of testosterone specifically or of all the hormones? Any of them that are given are going to be super high. But what happens is these companies, they come out and they pitch it. They make it sound really nice. And I've been pitched many times until they realize that I'm not going to do it. But they really pitch it. They look at the numbers. I figured it out. If I did pellets based on the numbers they gave me, I would make an extra $25,000 a month in profit. It's hard to say no to that because well, I'm already doing hormones and they told me they're safe and blah, blah, blah. So that's the incentive. And the problem is it's also protocol driven. So what happens is they draw the labs and then they put it into this computer and the computer will basically tell them what they think you should be on. There's no art to it. There's no rhyme or reason to it. And the other problem is because of that, people that have absolutely no idea about hormones at all are doing these. So plastic surgeons, emergency room doctors, and I'm not bashing these people. It's fine, but it's obviously money driven if that's the reason they're doing because plastic surgeons could care less about hormones. They just don't care. They've got other things they're doing, but it's a way to make extra income. These women are coming in. They want to look better. They want to feel younger. Oh, hormones. What a great idea. And you're paying a lot of money for them. I think they're personally, I think they're dangerous. And I really question the motivation behind the insertion. Yeah. Could you describe for a moment, and I know this might sound a little gross to people, but I was like, okay, pellets, how do you take them? At first, I thought it was like a sublingual thing. And then I heard you explain you're essentially carving out a space in somebody's rear, essentially, to put these pellets under the skin, hoping they don't migrate or create an infection or do any other sorts of things. So it can actually be painful as well, or is painful, a painful procedure. I'd say it's a surgical procedure. They say it's not. Anytime you're draping the patient and you are prepping the site and you're putting something inside somebody's body, that to me is a surgical procedure. And it's a big trocar. A trocar is basically just a needle, but it's very thick because these pellets are probably like two grains of rice put together and they have to put it under your skin 
and they have to get it into an area that's well away from the poke hole site. Otherwise, the pellet will just spit back out. So they have to tunnel it up into an area and they'll put in one or two of these pellets and then you're done. But yeah, you got to do that every three or four months. So after a while, you would think that would just hurt. Besides being overdosed, I see infections. I see the pellets getting spit back out. I see bruising, pain, irritation, dimpling in the skin because the pellets have been put in so much that this you have a dent in your rear. It's definitely a surgical procedure. And the problem too, because of that, once you put them in, you can't get them out. I stuck with them for until they wear off. And another side effect I think I also heard you mention is that sometimes they can have lasting effects if they get too much testosterone. As for- the two things that are permanent with high testosterone over time are voice deepening, and that doesn't go back, and then clitoromegaly, where the clitoris just gets enlarged and like a little penis because of the stimulation from the testosterone. If that happened, that also doesn't go down. The other things, changes in cholesterol, high blood pressure, stroke risks, those will get better if you stop the medication, but you just got to keep an eye on those things while you're on it. So essentially you start to have the increased heart health risks that men of that age might have. Yeah. At the levels that I've seen, most women are around two to 300 milligrams of testosterone on these pellets and a man, a low number for a man is around 250 to 300. So you're up in the levels of men. Let's talk for a moment about your hormone range, because this is something that was also a mystery to me as I discovered that I had hypothyroidism, that there's like a low normal and then a mid-range and then a high normal. I think often women, they get their results from their annual and their doctor might say, oh, you're within normal ranges and the conversation ends there, but they still might not feel their best. So what do you say to your patients or to women who might be confronting these sorts of realities where their energy is low, their sex drive's low, they might be experiencing some undue weight gain and experiencing some other health challenges that relate to their hormones and yet they're told that they're in normal ranges. The thing about a range is it's a range. So say free testosterone, which is the active form of testosterone, normal is going to be 0.2 to 6.4. Okay, that's a 30-fold range, huge. So let's say you get your labs done and you're 0.4, you're normal. Okay, so that's great. But, and I always say it like this, normal just means you're in the house. If you're 0.4, you're in the basement laying on the floor of the house. Now, maybe you'll feel better, if you're in the middle of the house, that would be an eightfold increase in your testosterone level. Now, it seems crazy to me to say to a woman, why wouldn't you want to be in the middle of normal, especially when you have fatigue, you're falling asleep in the afternoon, your hair is thinning, you feel meh, you don't have a sex drive. When you have all the symptoms, just because it's normal, like I said, I can multiply it eightfold and it would just be in the middle of normal, but you might feel a heck of a lot better. And when you feel better, you're going to eat better. You're going to maybe work out. You're going to have an active sex life, which is good for your health. And so what I call that is lazy medicine. And the reason that I say that is because it's so lazy to just say you're normal. I had a patient tell me recently that her doctor told her, yeah, everything's normal. And she's then why do I feel like this? Why do I have any? You're still pretty. So that'll like, that's going to make it better. I don't know. It's Or you're just getting older. They hear a lot. Or No, you hear you're getting older. Like you should just expect to feel crummy as you age. We don't tell men that you're just getting older. We There's testosterone clinics every five feet. We know that women are obviously treated differently by the medical system. But to me, it's nowhere near 
as prevalent as it is in hormones because of just exactly what you just pointed out. And the methods of giving people treatment in this day and age, you have pellets, which are invasive. You have injections, which are also invasive, and they tend to be something you have to go back for routinely. And then I guess, are there oral treatments for women or is it only topical from there? Like, where do we go? There's topical, there's sublingual, which is a tablet you just put under the tongue and let it dissolve. And there's capsules, which you swallow. We tend to stay away from the capsules if we can, because when you take something orally like that, you're going to probably lose about half of it, 30% of it to the liver. And you're putting a little bit of added stress on the liver. A sublingual tablet, you'll probably swallow about 10% of that, but still a lot of it's just going right underneath your tongue. So it's going into the blood vessels. So my two preferred methods of replacement are going to be topical or sublingual. Cool. So if I'm thinking about this overall, there's a couple of things that have come to mind as we've had this conversation. When we first started talking about the injections and the pellets, I was reminded of this birth control method that was popular when I was in my teens called Depo-Provera. I think that's what it was. It was injections that you put underneath the skin on the inner arm. And the challenges with those was they would migrate and things along those lines too. But so many women today are saying that they don't want to have to experience hormonal birth control and yet they aren't ready to get pregnant. So what types of advice might you give the girls of reproductive age who are sexually active and not yet ready to have children, but who might also want to shy from taking a birth control pill every day? Obviously there's condoms, no fun, but they're there. They can break. And so that doesn't prevent pregnancy, right? The only thing that prevents pregnancy is not having sex, but that's not going to work. So Fexi is a relatively new prescription that's been around for about a year. Fexi is a gel that you put inside the vagina that actually all it does really is lower the pH. So it's toxic to sperm. The downside to Fexi is that you have to put it in about a half an hour before sex. So you got to plan. There's always the non-hormonal uh, IUD, the copper T Paragard. It's been around for decades. It lasts for 10 years. It's a little harder to put it in women that have never had a baby because it's bigger. And so you may not be a good candidate for it if you've never been pregnant in the past. There's a couple of things coming down the pipeline for men. I honestly don't think any of them will ever get picked up because men aren't going to buy them. They're not going to go on them. I always say the best form of female birth control is a vasectomy because you don't have to do anything. Lastly, though, and I, what I use a lot in my practice are fertility awareness devices like Daisy, Eye for Tracker, that actually check your basal body temperature. If they follow your data for about three months, the accuracy rates of those devices telling you when you can get pregnant. Now, these are not birth control devices, they're fertility devices. So they tell you when you're ovulating and they turn green when you should have sex because that's when you can get pregnant. The flip side of that, though, is if you know when you're ovulating, you also know when not to have sex. So not necessarily maybe 100%, but it's about 98%. It reminds me of a joke from the 80s. What do you call somebody who practices the rhythm method? And it was mama. But that was without the intelligence of something like this, right? When women were just going off the calendar and saying, okay, I should be ovulating in this three or four days. And so I won't have sex around that. But the reality is that you would, sometimes your hormones shift. Stress affects when you're going to ovulate. There's so many different things that can come into play. So tracking it with your body temperature makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, body temperatures. And like I said, it, to me, it's also more data. So let's say you're having a lot of pain on your right side. 
you look at your fertility tracker and you just ovulate it. It's a good feedback device because it teaches you more about your cycle. So tell me again what this is called and where our audience find out more about it. Daisy is D-A-Y-S-Y and I think it's Daisy USA. IFER tracker is another one. I-F-E-R-T-R-A-C-K-E-R, IFER tracker. And the difference between the two is Daisy's just one thing. It's a little thermometer that hooks to your phone. It's $300 and there's never really anything else to buy. IFER tracker is only like $105 and you put a patch on at night when you go to bed and it takes your body temperature, but you have to buy the patches every month for 15 bucks. Yeah, six in one hand, half dozen in the other. Similar tools to do the job. That's really interesting. So if there was a particular message that you wanted to leave our audience with today, what might it be? You have to be your own best advocate anymore. And I don't mean this in a bad way, but they don't have the time to tell you when your labs are, if they're normal. What I always say is, Normal doesn't mean it's normal for you and you have to be your best advocate. So I have women all the time. They'll ask me on Instagram or something. What do I do if my doctor doesn't want to order the labs because that happens or two, they tell me my labs are normal, but I feel horrible. Find another doctor. There are plenty of physicians out there that will listen. And if they don't listen to you, then you don't want to be around with them anyways. But also don't just take that at face value. We've done that for decades. We've told women, oh, that's fine. Don't worry about it. And they just go home and suffer because nobody's helping them. Don't take that as an answer. If you don't feel right, if you aren't the person that you want to be. And I always ask patients that even if I start them on hormones and they come back in six weeks, how do you feel? And is this how you want to feel? Because if you don't, feel the way you want to feel, let's fine tune things a little bit to get you maybe where you want to be. Because usually you can get there. Sometimes I tell patients, I might be able to get you 75 to 80% of the way, but you got to do the other things. You got to eat right and work out and do those things, but just don't take it at face value and keep advocating for yourself, even if nobody's listening. Well, that speaks to me. I'm in a medical system with an HMO now where I have a little bit less choice than I used to have with who my doctor is. But what I've found is that I get an automatic email with my test results and then just a message that says things are normal. So I have to go in and look at them and then get a list of questions together for the doctor, which I'll send to them. And then they'll respond. They will. We need to do something different. I can do something different. Or I look at something and say, this is within normal ranges, but I want to know more about what it means. Specifically, let's say with vitamin D as a, for example, where I have tended to test low, I have Mediterranean descent. And so I'm perhaps not making it as well from the sun. I do supplement with vitamin D, but perhaps wasn't taking quite enough or maybe not quite frequently enough, or maybe it was seasonal and did we need to check my levels again in six months? So just being your own advocate, trying to get at least a basic understanding of what each of the results means for yourself. And then if you need to select another practitioner, go the route to do that. You have to, I mean, no way around it. Well, I just appreciate so much the time that you've spent with us today. I would love to know if you have any news or what's coming in the future with regard to your podcast or with your efforts with your website. Are you seeing patients remotely? Is that something that's open to people that are outside of the Austin, Texas area? I have started getting licensed in other states so that I can do telehealth because I was limited in the people that I could help based on just location. It's easier now after COVID to get licensed in other states. So I'm pulling it up right now, but I'm obviously licensed here in Texas. I'm licensed in Georgia and Oklahoma, 
Arizona, Utah, Ohio, Nebraska, Louisiana, and Colorado and Alabama. So anybody in those states, I can see virtually. And I'll be expanding that as I have people ask and stuff. It's expensive to do that, to get licensed. But I will be seeing, I can see people from other states. And I'm also going to start probably in January offering some online type stuff that women can do that will allow them to work with me and not just on hormones, but also on diet, exercise, and things like that, because that's all part of it. That's wonderful. Thank you again so much for joining me today. I will be sure to include that list with show notes as well, so that people that are in those states, if they're frustrated with what they're hearing from their doctor, they can come direct to you. Awesome. I will be sure to include links to where you can learn more about Dr. Sean Tasson with show notes, including that hormonal type quiz and his podcast, Confessions of a Male Gynecologist. I'm even going to point out a couple that are my favorite episodes, including an interview he did with Dr. Anthony Yoon, someone he mentioned briefly during today's episode. Visit orlonutrition.com for our complete blog, including the features we discussed, some of which you won't find anywhere else. If you have questions about what we covered or topics that you'd personally like to see us dive into more deeply, please reach out via social channels at Orlo Nutrition, or you can send me an email note directly to hello at orlonutrition.com. I also want to remind all listeners that you qualify for an extra 10% off your first order at orlonutrition.com. Just use the coupon code NWC10 at checkout for that discount. This could mean as much as 37% off your order as we're currently running a holiday promotion with a bundle that includes our immunity boost product, which is vitamin D3 along with spirulina and a smattering of B vitamins to support your immune system. As we close today's show, I hope that you'll raise a cup of your favorite beverage with me as I raise my coffee and say my closing words. Here's to your health. Thanks for listening to Nutrition Without Compromise. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to learn more, visit orlonutrition.com and join our mailing list. You'll gain access to complete show notes, features, and informative blogs because nutrition shouldn't be an either or. 